thank you very much for inviting me here. I know uh, the reason I agreed to come is partly because one of the things I was discussing with you briefly is that over time I've realized when I started working on Tibet, that was 1997, the seven years in Tibet had come out and Kundun was another movie that came out in Bollywood and there was a lot of exoticization of Tibet and Dalai Lama. And I was very intrigued because I was a master's student then. And I thought, and I was in India very a very political person, so going for protest against the government on everything. I was uh, discussing Palestine, Burma, but Tibet never figured. So I was curious how in the West, there was so much of fascination with and interest in the issue of Tibet. That's 1997. And today, of course, 2016, things have changed rapidly. It's not only that <clears throat> the exoticization, which was not, which was problematic, of course, has been largely, uh, has largely gone, but also this Hollywood fascination. So everyone will talk of Hollywood and how it's fascinated with Dalai Lama. That's largely gone. And it's not gone because of what Dalai Lama has done. It's mainly because of what China has become. So I've noticed over time the kind of issue that was animating me then and the kind of issues we could talk about, even in academia, are becoming more problematic over time. And I'm talking not in terms of China. I'm not talking about what kind of thing we can talk in China. I'm talking what kind of thing we can talk outside China also. Let me give an example. When I, uh, while coming to Sydney, I was at National University of Singapore. Uh, there I had a talk, not even, not, I didn't even use the colonial word for Chinese rule in uh, Tibet, but I was talking about uh, contested geopolitics and politics of China, Tibet, India, West, and that kind of, those kind of issues. Various reaction, but one positive reaction, it was meant to be positive, was that how I was very courageous for doing this kind of research. For me, it's problematic because, of course, if the kind of research we do gets designated as courageous simply because we are doing what we should be doing and we are speaking in my sense, I mean, the way I say is truth to power. So there shouldn't be any question of courage, but it was that's how it was re, uh, presented. Now, the re, again, what I have myself experienced and noticed in different universities in UK, in Europe, possibly Australia also, is that shrinking space for the kind of research that can be done on China. So... I mean, the kind again early. We're talking. I mean, I was discussing with a friend earlier that, uh, for instance, when uh, the what was that? Uh, Iraq war, Iraq invasion happened. Iraq war happened. A lot of us were protesting against Iraq war, and no one in the university ever told us that you should not talk about Iraq war because you have American students here. But I get that a lot more now. That oh, you should be sensitive about certain subjects because you have got Chinese students, as if the Chinese students do not have the capacity to have critical thinking. And we have to, as a universities and academics, respect certain stereotypes of what Chinese students are meant to think like. But uh, I'm sure you would be, maybe hopefully not at this university, but you'd be aware of these kind of pressures we are all under. When we look at websites of different China research centers, China study center, China whatever centers the universities have, we start seeing that it's not no longer about knowledge about China. It's not no longer about critical engagement with China. It's not even about engagement with China. It's about working in partnership with China and Australia, China and whatever, to look at various issues. So what I'm trying to therefore argue the wider context is that there is a shrinking of space, or shrinking of honest space, I would say, to do research that could be seen as critical of China. Not critical in terms of critical within China, but critical outside China. And Tibet is one of those issues, right? Now, the, 
I did not see, I mean, I did, in fact, uh, I did not see the Chinese rule over Tibet. I did not conceptualize Chinese rule over Tibet in colonization terms. I would often use the word occupation, but it would be largely the control word. I'd look at the way in which China-Tibet relation functions and all of it. And in fact, most of the work on Tibet avoids the use of the word colonization. But I started noticing more and more in terms of, uh, because I'm a student of history originally, though I've moved into international relations, the ways in which what was colonization. And in fact, I started thinking of colonization not vis-a-vis -vis Tibet only, but vis-a-vis -vis Kashmir in India. That's another research I'm doing now. So the more I experienced the places, the more I felt that what I had read about colonization holds true. So in a sense, that's the work I'm doing right now, and that's what I'm going to talk about, though there are various other things also mentioned. So colonialism is largely about, or mainly about, asymmetric relation of power. So if I'm colonizing you, we'd have a relation. It would be a relation of power, it would be an asymmetric relation. So I'd always have upper hand over you. You may subvert me, you may resist me, but the reality is there will be an asymmetry of power. So asymmetric relation of power is at the heart of any colonial enterprise. Second aspect of colonialism I could think of is alien territorial control. It involves territorial control. We are not talking therefore of neo-colonialism. We are not talking of uh, indirect imperialism. We are talking of colonialism here. So it's an alien territorial control. Now who decides whether the territorial control is alien or not? Is it those who control or is it those who are controlled? So the argument under colonialism is that it is the colonized or those who experience colonization who have the prerogative to decide whether the control that they have is what they want or what is alien or what is alienating. The third aspect therefore of colonialism is of alienating people where while the colonizer colonizes and does it in the name of paternalism, I don't know, the progress, civilization, liberation, and all of those things. The reality is, it never trusts the colonized to ever become equal to them. If we take example of uh, the British Declaration of 1858, after the Crown took direct control over the colony of India, the language of Victoria was very clear. It was not about, we are here to loot you, we are here to kill you, we are here to uh, plunder you. The language was very clear. It was about self-government in the future. It's to help the people, help the natives. But when you look at the reality of colonialism, we always see that in the end, the natives can never be trusted. Colonialism has also been about knowledge production. Not only when we took a Fanon or when we took a Edward Said or the entire enterprise of personal scholarship and others, we know that the colonialism always goes hand in hand with knowledge production of the other. So it's not enough that I rule you, it's also about the knowledge I produce about you. Now, in the knowledge I produce about you, let's say the colonized, is one where, again, I produce the knowledge, you're not, you can never be an active agent in producing your own knowledge. So at best, again, you can speak against me, subvert me, but you, your ability to produce knowledge about yourself would not work. Right? So it's about knowledge production. So there's an entire enterprise of knowledge production. So hand in hand with European imperialism goes Orientalism, for instance. Right? It is about economic exploitation. Colonialism does employ, it does involve economic exploitation, you know, taking over territory, primarily for the interest of the colonizer. While, of course, the interest of the colonizer may get served partially. For instance, railways being built in India, 
would was not because uh, British wanted to liberate Indians from uh, using railway. It was because you needed they needed access to the market inside, and they needed to take raw materials from inside to out. The fact that railway helps India later in any case was secondary. But the reality is, economic exploitation, or is essentially about, sorry, the economic infrastructure is essentially about uh, economic exploitation. So, for instance, you have development being used as a mechanism of control. So, development is not to empower people, but it's to control people. Colonialism is also about cultural subservience. So, culture can be exoticized, eroticized, glamorized, but never treated as equal. Culture can also be, you know, eulogized. So, oh, you know, your culture is such, you know, if you're so spiritual, we should learn from you. Some of us will come and learn from you. But in the end, you can never be as practical as we are. So in modern life, you are useless. So we have to control you. We have to rule you because that's the only way in which you can function in this real life. So that kind of cultural subservience is there. There's also racialization in certain context, ethnicization of seeing the other, the colonized as very different and then stereotyping around it. The stereotyping could be that you are otherworldly or thisworldly, you are lazy or you are hardworking. But broadly speaking, none of the stereotype of the colonized ever sees them as capable of governing themselves right now. At best, they'll be seen as someone capable of governing themselves over time. So it involves social transformation. So colonization is never about just leaving the society in. It does involve sometimes encouraging conservatism, sometimes it encourages what would be seen as liberal ideas, but they would be social transformation. Society has to be transformed. And of course, militarization. There can be no colonization without militarization, and therefore violence is at the heart of any colonial enterprise. So when I was thinking of, again, during discussion, we could, you could give me some more suggestions on what more is colonialism, because the way I saw colonialism is broadly these. Asymmetric relation of power, territorial control, control of people, knowledge production, economic exploitation, racialization, cultural subservience, militarization and use of violence. Now, when we try to look at, let's say, the Chinese rule over Tibet, China's Tibet, and the term that Chinese government uses is China's Tibet. So there's a center in Beijing, which is called China Tibetology Research Center. Then the center of China Tibetan medicine. So they can't be Tibetan, you have to always China's Tibetan, China Tibetan medicine, China Tibetology Research Center. So Tibet cannot exist without China. But the fact that they are, from what I know, there's nothing called China Beijing or China Sichuan or China Xinjiang for that matter. Shows you this, this, this obsession to always create this China's Tibet maybe reflects a psychic understanding that Tibet is not China's and therefore it has to be made into China's Tibet. Maybe that's what it is. But anyway, so when we look at Chinese uh, discourse around Tibet and Chinese policies on Tibet, and Chinese rhetoric and propaganda and actual you know, policy, everything in Tibet, I do see it in, and that's what I'm going to argue and I'm working on that is, it is very much a case of classic colonialism. If we see what I discussed with colonialism, which is what is associated usually with European colonialism, when we look at Tibet in, sorry, China in Tibet, we see it as a colonization. Right? It's not... in. Now, in a previous paper I'd written in, I don't know when it came out, maybe 2012, on, in Rethinking Marxism, I talked about post-colonial informal empires, China and India, in Tibet and Kashmir. But I think I've gone beyond that. I think it's not, they're not informal empires, they are pure colonial endeavors. Let me explain to you. For instance, when we look at the discourse around Tibet, 
there's a magazine called China Stabit. It's a magazine since 1988 or 89. It's produced by United Front Work Department. And I happen to have, I think, every issue since it came out because I was given that in Beijing because I was working on China's public diplomacy. So I was interested in how China convinces the outside world that Tibet is belongs to China. So that's what I was interested in. So got that book. And I just had a quick look. I didn't have patience to read most of it, but quick look. All I can say to you, and you take my word for it, there's not a single picture since 1988 or 89 until today where there's not a single there's not a single Tibetan who does not smile. So every Tibetan smiles every time. Now, the only time when you have got uh, earthquake, major earthquake, you don't see Tibetans smiling. But there, what you see is the military or the Chinese government official or Chinese people giving something. So there, the picture becomes not of the Tibetans but of the Chinese. And there, if Tibetans are shown, usually they'll have their face covered because you know it's you know their dead bodies around or something, so you can't see them. But the reality is otherwise, there is no sad Tibetan that you could see. Usually, it's always happy Tibetan, smiling Tibetan. The reason I mention this is because when we take example of the ways in which China makes claims and asserts claim both, it is always an asymmetric relation of power. So the 17-point agreement. So in 1951, Dalai Lama was forced to sign a 17-point agreement with uh, with China, which recognized that Tibet is now a local government, and the central government will take care of its external affairs. But in return. Beijing will allow the traditional system of governance to continue till Tibetans are ready and willing for uh, uh, they use social or democratization is the language they use, right? So till they are ready for it. So till then they'll not be uh, there. But from the very beginning, from since then, the idea that yes, Tibetans have to be ready, but they can't decide when they are ready. So when Dalai Lama flees, comes into exile in 1959, the 17-point agreement is scrapped very quickly. No consultation is done with Tibetans, and the idea is Tibetans wanted it, because how do, do you know Tibetans want it? Because people want it. How do people want it? Because it's People's Republic of China. So the Party's Republic of China, because that's what it is in reality. Party's Republic of China claims to speak for the people, but there's no mechanism through which people can be consulted, or there's no mechanism through which people can legitimately, without fear, challenge what goes on in their name. And that is, I mean, that is the reality of China we are talking about in general, but also specifically in Tibet. So there's very asymmetric relations. So always the rhetoric is Tibetans are grateful. So not only in magazines, but if you look at the language, they say Tibetans are thankful to the central government. When you have Tibetan officials being part of the Chinese system, they'll always, you'll only hear them speaking of how grateful they are to Beijing, how grateful they are to rest of uh, to well they say rest of china rest of china for generosity so there's always that language of gratitude and language of gratitude as we know in this kind of context is always a language that goes along with language of paternalism the chinese rule is a paternalistic rule it would be violent and other things we'll come to violence part but at the very least it's a paternalistic rule so who liberates tibet it's communist party of china that liberates tibet how many Tibetans were there in the Communist Party of China when China liberated Tibet? Hardly any. How many Tibetans were there in the PLA who then went to liberate Tibet because liberation did not take place with uh, the entire CPC, uh, Communist Party of China? It went with the PLA, so the military branch of PLA. No one. So you have a situation of 
liberation of the other without consultation with the other. And this reminds me of uh, Napoleon when he went to Egypt, in whenever he went, 1804, when did he go? 1804 or something, when he went to Egypt, I, I don't know, when he went to Egypt, or maybe it was before that, when he went to Egypt, he talked about how he has come to liberate people of Egypt from the tyrannical rule of the Ottomans, and people should not fear because he's going to protect religion and he's going to be practical saying, I'm going to be a better Muslim than the Muslim rulers you have. But the reality was language of liberation. So the fact that Communist Party uses the language of liberation does not imply that we take it for granted what liberation means. Because the reality is Tibetans are not consulted, Tibetans are not involved, Tibetans are compelled to sign that treaty. And even that treaty still said there won't be any democratization or democratic reforms, sorry, democratic reforms without consultation with Tibetans. And that never happened. Right? So that remained there. One of the first white papers that Chinese government did on Tibet was in 1992, I think, around that time, which was called Tibet, its ownership, or ownership. Again, the language of ownership is there. Now, you could say that's in English. Well, we are talking of how China is asserting claim over Tibet to the outside world. So English becomes relevant there. But not only that, uh, one more thing we have to keep in mind is, sorry, uh, but because the reality is when they take control of Tibetans, they don't even use that facade of ownership. They don't even use white papers. White papers are not relevant because there it is largely a military control. So this whole rhetoric of liberation is mainly meant for the outsiders and meant for largely the Chinese public consumption. But in all of this, Tibetans are those who have to be liberated and were liberated. In 2009 or 2010 or 2008, I think, they started Serfs Emancipation Day. I think it was in 2009. Basically, 2008 was a large-scale protest in Tibet. In 2009 or 2010, I think in 2009, they started what's called Serfs Emancipation Day. Now, you have to start thinking that who emancipated serfs in 2009, given that Communist Party had liberated Tibet since, well, depends. Sometimes they'll say 1951, sometimes they'll say 1959, because once Dalai Lama left. Because the notion was that Tibet has forgotten how it meant to be emancipated, and therefore they have to celebrate it now. Of course, much of the celebration is forced celebration. It's on 28th of March, if not mistaken. They have that celebration again and again. In that notion again, there is no thanking of Tibetan cadres for working with Chinese cadres to liberate Tibet. All the thanking is of Beijing. So I'm just trying to repeat the argument that various forms, cultural form, through festivals, through propaganda literature, through the language of white papers, through the language of Tibetan delegates in CPPCC and working for the government in TR, the language is simply of gratitude and paternalism. It becomes a very paternalistic rule there. And in that sense, it's very clearly a sign of asymmetric relation of power where Tibetans cannot be trusted to take care of themselves. They have to be taken care of. Uh, during my ethnographic work, when I was allowed into Tibet, which was before 2012, 2012 was when I hosted Dalai Lama in my university. After that, all the invitations have disappeared. Uh, but uh, let's say, before that, when I would go, I remember, but all these, and again, these are not coincidental. These are interesting insights. So an official saying to me, I said, I really need to go to this area beyond uh, Lhasa. They said, did you speak to the official? I said, yes, I spoke to him. No, not to the Tibetan one. Speak to the second in command who is a Chinese official, so Han Chinese. So it was very clear again and again that even in bureaucracy, if Tibetans are still at high position, they have no real power. It's always the Chinese there who would have power. 
or um, a statement made by a very senior uh, Chinese uh, official in Tibet who has been in Tibet for 30 years, who could not even say Tashi Dele, forget anything else, and he has no interest, which is okay. I mean, even I'm bad with language, so I can't blame him for that. But at least he had no interest. But he would keep saying to me that the problem with Tibetans are not greedy. We can't understand why they can't give up on religion or why can't they, in my, I'm using my word, instrumentalize religion. He kept saying that Tibetans have got so much of money now, we have done this and this and this, and they're still so religious. And that is what we have to deal with. And then the rationale was, because they're so religious, they can't govern themselves. So we have to be there to help them. So again, there's asymmetric relation power. There is alien territorial control because the reality is that Tibet, what is Tibet was under control of two big empires in China. One was Qing, the Manchus, and one was uh, the Yuan, the Mongols. Otherwise, Tibet as a region has usually been out of what was empires of China. Even if when you look at, there's a very interesting map on Wikipedia of uh, China, and which shows you the maps of different empires collapsing and forming. And you see, that for most of it, it was largely concentrated in what's minority of area today in the coast. And the majority of China, which is Xinjiang, uh, is essentially the homeland of minorities. So China does face that situation of the, that, uh, let's say, the disjuncture between the fact that majority of population lives in minority of area and minority, oh, sorry, a majority of population lives in minority of area and majority of territory is homeland of minority people, be it Mongols, Uyghurs or Tibetans or others. That's the dilemma that they face, right? But uh, you have alien territorial control because that's how it was seen. So when, for instance, in 1913, 1912-13, when the Chinese army was expelled from Tibet after the collapse of uh, uh, the Qing Empire, it was, and Dalai Lama declared independence, the 13th Dalai Lama, not the 14th one, 13th Dalai Lama declared independence in 1913, uh, was it uh, February, 8th of February, in February they declared independence, right? So again, you could see there was a clear sense that we have some relation with China and that relation is not with China, it is to with emperors and emperors are also embodiments of Bodhisattva, it was a religious kind of links because the Manchus were Tibetan Buddhists. So, again, we can expand that later, but broadly speaking, the idea is that Tibetans perceived the Chinese army as invading army. And the term they kept using was red army. But red army not in red in positive sense, but red in terms of negative sense. And I recall, again, I don't know the full detail, but there were, there were various uh, rumors in 1951, 52, 53, and the uh, slang that Tibetans would use for the Chinese PLA was very pejorative and negative. And the Chinese wanted them to use the word brother, but they would always talk of red army, but red in sense of being alien. Right? Now, Tibet's economic relation until 1959 was up to 80 to 90% with India. British India, then India. And when I say India, oh, sorry, but it also includes Sikkim and Bhutan. Bhutan is not India, of course, and Sikkim was in India then. But broadly speaking, Tibet was oriented towards south, not north. And one thing we have noticed from 51 to 59, which is a period of accommodation between Dalai Lama and Chinese government, was that concerted efforts were made by the Chinese government to shift the southward orientation of Tibet into northward orientation. But PLA could not manage on its own because they needed rice. The rice came via Calcutta and Darjeeling. It did not come via China. 
it came via this. So in a sense, Indian government did help Chinese PLA to take control over Tibet in various senses. That's what was happening. But that was period was recognized that essentially Tibet's main trade relation with India. 1954 is an agreement called Panchil Agreement. Panchil Agreement is uh, five principles of peaceful coexistence. That's the first time that the Chinese government and Indian government both articulate the foreign policy. And even today, China claims that the key principle of foreign policy is non-interference, mutual respect, territorial integrity and all of that. Now, 54 was a treaty when it got enshrined and that was a treaty between India and China. But the interesting part is the treaty was not between India and China over five principles. It was an agreement between PRC and Republic of India over trade and intercourse between Tibet region of China and India. So the treaty therefore was not India and China's relation. Treaty was Tibet, which is recognized as part of China now, but Tibet and India. I'm saying this because if you read about, if you ever interested in foreign policy, if you read about India-China foreign policy, Panchil, five principles, you'd hardly ever come across this significant fact that Tibet was mentioned. This is the last international treaty that Tibet got mentioned. Even the Tibet region of China, it still says Tibet. It did not acknowledge sovereignty. It simply says Tibet region of China. Now, and this becomes significant because then you, we can keep in mind that essentially the trade relation or the historical trade relation of uh, Tibet was with India. And in 62, India and China have a border war. Again, I can expand that in question answer if you want. And then that stops and the trade relation completely comes to a standstill and that is when Tibet becomes dependent on China. So today, one of the rhetoric used by the Chinese nationalists, including those in Communist Party, is that we subsidize Tibet. Tibet is a liability. We spend so much of money into it. I said, but that has not been the case historically. Historically, Tibet was not dependent on China. It was, had, it was not dependent on anyone. It had trade relation with India. So one China-India border dispute leads to closure of border and therefore Tibet has no option but to become dependent. And again, that is part and parcel of colonization where you take a particular territory, control particular people and you transform the economy in a manner where that territory becomes totally dependent on you. We have seen what Europeans did in well, not only Australia but what they did in Africa, making, making them resource dependent. So you extract resources and then you claim that they can't govern themselves. Today, of course, Tibet is used for resource extraction. If you look at TR's budget, it, much of it is subsidized by Beijing. But then, mining that's done in Tibet is not including TR's budget. The PLA's presence in Tibet is not acknowledged as part of TR's budget. So, in a sense, budget is presented in a manner where Tibet is seen as someone that is dependent on Beijing, dependent on largess from Beijing. But in reality, maybe possibly, we don't know, but Tibet might be paying more than its own for its own occupation because of the mining and through rivers, of course, river resources. Knowledge production, when we look at, again, the kind of knowledge being produced about Tibet, I mean, have any, has anyone been to Tibet? Have you anyone? Now, uh, but have you spoken to Chinese government or Chinese, I don't know, I shouldn't say Chinese people, it's an awkward term, but let's say Chinese nationalists about Tibet. I mean, the one thing you'd, I mean, the one thing I noticed when I was doing the public diplomacy research was, there are simple narratives. Tibet has always been part of China. Right? So that's there. Everything wrong in Tibet, 
And okay, that's one. So every Tibet is always in part of China. So everything has to prove that. Second is that old Tibet was a horrible place. It was a feudal theocracy. Everything was bad. In uh, Lhasa, there's a particular uh, um, uh, a small museum next to Potala Palace where you go and you hear sounds of lashing going on, how the landlord used to beat up the serfs. Right? So you, you, you basically, there's an enactment of torture and everything. So old Tibet was a horrible theocratic feudal hell. <coughs> New Tibet, on the other hand, under Chinese Communist Party, is a land of milk and honey. Okay, maybe not milk, but at least honey and everything else. That's the notion. Happy. Now, which is op almost opposite of the Western Shangri-La view of where old Tibet was this great place and new Tibet was, of course, communist ruled and horrible. Now, the interesting part is the rhetoric of Tibet always being part of China and then saying that old Tibet was the responsibility of Dalai Lama and everything wrong is somehow not Chinese responsibility contrary to each other. Because the argument I would make is, if Tibet always belonged to China, then everything wrong in Tibet was also responsibility of China. And therefore, Chinese government cannot claim, therefore, that old Tibet being feudal theocratic is somehow not our responsibility and, and that we liberated it. Right? So it's, it's a very contrary. Either, either it was always part of China and therefore Dalai Lama was part of you and therefore everything bad done by Dalai Lamas was your responsibility or you acknowledge that no it was not part of China and therefore everything wrong was bad and now we have liberated it but that's the thing that they do now but the knowledge when I say knowledge production this is part and parcel of knowledge the Tibet was always there you go to exhibitions there in Lhasa everywhere you end up seeing the same kind of rhetoric I mean I get tired of it because I've been researching that for so long but the rhetoric of it always being part of the motherland now there was this relation during Songsen Gampo particular period where uh, the, the uh, Tibetan king slash emperor, uh, Tibetan king, he married two women. He married a Chinese princess and he married a Nepalese princess. And both these princess, princesses are ascribed or you know, sort of praised for bringing Buddhism into Tibet. Now in the Chinese nationalist narrative, the Nepalese princess has disappeared. She's gone, though she was very much there. In fact, the deity of Buddha that she brought was more important than deity of Buddha that uh, the Chinese princess brought. But in Chinese narrative now, the idea is that it is the Han woman who civilizes these barbarians through Buddhism. And that play keeps coming on again and again. But Nepalese princess completely disappeared. Because if they actually acknowledge the reality, and if you acknowledge that okay, somehow Buddhism comes through two princesses and nothing else took place, even then you acknowledge that Buddhism comes through China, it comes through Nepal. So it comes from south and north both. That cannot be acknowledged. Those kind of knowledge being, is being produced. Uh, all, I mean, uh, there are more Tibet experts in uh, China now than possibly in the entire world. Now, that was not the case 20 years ago. The knowledge was always about how Chinese rule is legitimate. That's history. There's not a single questioning of the claim of legitimacy of China. So not, I mean, not a single. I have not come across any single uh, questioning of that. That's history. Then history would also be about the 7th century, again how the Chinese princes have civilized the Tibetans. Or it would be of selective episodes that show that, uh, um, that show that basically Chinese had control over Tibet. Oh sorry, another contradiction. When Chinese Communist Party say we liberated Tibet, then they have to acknowledge they liberated from someone. So they have to say we liberated from imperialists. The problem is possible there were three or four British people in Tibet in 1950-51. Uh, 
so they were and they were radio operators and others so they were hardly and there was one officer who had already been working for india so the language then is then if they say liberation then they have to acknowledge that someone else was ruling tibet which they can't so when you look at history when they'll talk of history between 1913 and 1950 there's a vacuum so that is the reality of de facto independence of tibet so that is somehow disappeared right so those history production about the present again the rhetoric is of happy smiling tibetans uh, always you know being grateful to the government it is about how the force and the force resettlement projects which is called urbanization project or whatever projects that chinese government may call is again presented as something that is beneficial there might be small things here and there that has to be changed but more or less it is fine so that is knowledge being produced it's through popular media it's through dance it's through academia and interestingly knowledge production about tibet is also now being export export import exported i don't know whether you had it or not but i had three delegations from china including tibetan scholars from china visiting my university for which i was for which i was accused of being communist propagandist because i hosted them and then of course i invited dalai lama then i was accused of some being something else right but uh, the reality is that that knowledge production is also being sent out since 2008 in particular once the protest took place in tibet there have been a very strong effort made by china to send delegations out to western universities to inform and educate so see there's not only knowledge production amongst tibetans where some of you may know some of you may not there's this patriotic reeducation campaign now that's not a thing of 198 cultural revolution that's taking place even now part of patriotic education campaign in tibet is where monks and nuns are made to denounce the dalai lama right so that's part and parcel of the patriotic education campaign now of course so far we are not made to denounce the dalai lama in the west but reality some of us bending over backwards to denounce the dalai lama or at least distance ourselves from him so that we show to the chinese that we are being neutral but that is taking place it will take place through not only sending out delegations it will take place to confucius institutes where the kind of research being done on china kind of knowledge being produced on china would be largely disciplined if not censored actively because a lot of censorship as you may know is self censorship rather than active censorship it may start taking place through again the kind of issues that are being talked about uh you know bob car getting photo is it bob car what was his name bob car being photographed with zhu weichun who is the one of the most hardline uh, of senior official possible on tibet and on minority issue it's not only one particular get person getting photographed that is also a sign of things to come where there will be more and more export of what china wants the world to see around tibet right and that's we can expand that again later so knowledge being produced inside tibet it's very controlled but it's more brutal control in china where most chinese would not even know anything about tibet beyond what the government says and not much and outside tibet it's the knowledge being produced it is about economic exploitation again i would mention mining but mining does not benefit the local people ever let me give an example of uh, if you have been to lhasa lhasa beyond the old lhasa is largely a chinese town when i say chinese is han and hui both and others <coughs> now when you raise these things the uh, the the answer i've always given but you know it's a free country we can can't stop people from coming from here and there so like a good democracy and they say look at us look at china they don't have special preferences for minorities so why should we i didn't want to say what happens in kashmir because kashmir with all the flaws and kashmir is a case of proper colonization and brutal occupation by india but still indians or rather non 
Indians cannot own property in Kashmir. That's not allowed. They can go and visit, but they can't own property. So I think the Chinese rhetoric that is going against the nationality politics conveniently uses US and Indian policy to say that somehow everyone should be treated equally and there should be no preference for minorities. But in this context, uh, I was looking at the ways in which you know they, they were fertile lands around Lhasa. Now you've got uh, high-tech industries, small-scale industries, but high-tech. So what happens is land is being taken from Tibetans. But Tibetans don't get job there. So they do get compensated. But the compensation, and then they put into a particular, so from uh, being uh, farmers, they are put into model villages. And model villages, unless you are foreigners are going, then it's different. If foreigners are not going to those model villages, are prone to drug abuse, severe ones, no employment, so nothing there. So let's say if I'm a Tibetan, I get a lot of money for selling my land. I get housed in a particular area, but I don't have the education, the skill to work in that in those areas. I lose my community. I lose my culture to an extent. I get prone to social troubles and social problems. And within three to four years, I get impoverished. So from being farmer, okay, I become slightly rich. I go back to being much more poor, but this time without land, without resources. And now I'm dependent upon the government. And then the government will say, well, you are dependent because that's what Tibetans are. Tibetans are lazy. They don't work hard. There are no efforts from what I saw what I saw in Tibet University or other kind of institutions there to train Tibetans into getting those kind of jobs. So they are largely being marginalized. Work. That's the kind of economic system inequality that exists there. And that reminds me again of colonization of where it's so land is useful for resources. People are too lazy to work there. And this whole narrative of lazy natives. I recall that narrative in case of Assam in northeastern India, where this strong narrative of the British was, Assamis are very lazy. So you need outsiders to come and work. Outsiders will be tribals and indigenous people from other parts. Black people are very lazy. So you, what you need is, of course, Indians to be migrated into Fiji. Now, interestingly, in India, of course, it's an aside, it's not connected to this. I recently found that in Kashmir, the whole narrative of the Kashmir is too lazy. So you need outsiders to work. So everyone's too lazy everywhere and to work. So that's how its rhetoric is produced. But that's what's taking place. In other cultural subsistence, I don't think I need to even go into that. We know, I mean, religious repression is very high in Tibet. Now, you could find monasteries. If they exist. You'll find people worshipping. But the reality is, and I use the example of... Uh, uh, even prop I mean Dalai Lama is not only a national leader he is a national leader we can't change it he will say the ordinary monk but he is the symbol of the nation but he's not a religious leader in terms of being a leader he is not a prophet he is not a son of a god he is the god so in a sense he is the sacred right so he is a manifestation of Avalokiteshvara so the patron deity of Tibet in a sense, I said he is much he is much more important in Tibetan Buddhism than Prophet Muhammad would be to Islam or Jesus would be to Christians, because I said he is the sacred himself. Now, of course, the fact that he combines various things, being political leader, religious figure, leader, manifestation, does not change that fact for people. Now, of course, there are different sects in Tibet. Some for whom Dalai Lama is not the root guru, but that does not mean that they disrespect him. The reality is the Chinese demonization of Dalai Lama over the last 40 to 50 years has meant that he's much more important to Tibetans than he ever was in the past. In fact, I would argue that it is 
colonialism of China that is leading to reaction in form of anti-colonial Tibetan nationalism that makes Dalai Lama much more important than he ever was. So it is, it is Chinese colonization that has made him into this big a figure. But it's there, repression is there, and in TR, as you know, his pictures are not allowed, and I say his pictures are not allowed. Now, you may find, if you go and do ethnographic work, you may find his pictures here and there in terms of the people who would hide it and keep it. But the fact that people have to hide it and keep it tells you and speaks volumes about the reality or at least the claim of the Chinese there of having liberated Tibet. Uh, it is also in terms of uh, the monasteries or the temples that are visited by the tourists, including Han tourists, you'd find they have been rejuvenated, they're all there, and the monasteries that are not on tourist circuit are still destroyed since Cultural Revolution time. All you need to do is go beyond those tourist circuit and you'll find them, including inside Lhasa, those that are destroyed. Now, tourism is supposed to help economy. I'll take five or seven moments, is it okay? Okay, tourism is supposed to help. But in the past, in 80s, the primary tourism in Tibet was of, let's say, Western tourism. And generally, not always, Western tourism has its own problem, no doubt. But generally, the idea of tourism, I'm not talking the uh, upper, uh, you know, the, I'm not talking the rich tourists. I'm talking of the ordinary backpacking tourists. The notion was you stay with local family, you speak and interact with local uh, Tibetans, you eat with Tibetans. So at least some money went into Tibetan households. Now, bulk of tourism since 2008 is domestic, or rather domestic for China and colonizing for, from my perspective, but it's Chinese, Han Chinese tourism. Han Chinese tourists, they come in large groups, almost all of them. And I've spent three months there observing that. 95% possibly, if I'd be saying, they come in large group tourists. Group tourist. So they pay in Beijing, Sichuan, Shanghai, somewhere. They come in on flight or whatever. Then they come on organized bus tours driven by Chinese drivers. They go to restaurants that are Chinese. They have guides that are Chinese. They go to monastery. Now they can't find Chinese monks though they would ideally like to find that also, but they find Tibetan monks who would speak Chinese, few, and they'd be run out. So they'd not even get Chinese, Tibetan guide. So practically there's tourism, but hardly any money goes into the local economy. Some Tibetans do make money, those who are part and because those who are involved with the Chinese entrepreneurs in running tourism, but it does not go into local economy. I thought I'll just keep remind you of that. Cultural racialization, again, Tibetans being seen as dark, somewhat different, savage-like, barbarian, eroticized. You know, all of it is there, but there is that racialization, ethnicization of it, and even, I would say, religionization of it. Means as excessively religious and therefore not capable of governing themselves. And therefore, self-immolation, which is a form of protest, gets seen as extremism. When there is no, re I mean, you could ask, how do we know? Because we can only rely upon what... Uh, a testimony, some, not all, some who have emulated themselves are given. None of them have damned China and cursed China, from what I have read. Most of them are about Tibetans should be united together. All of them are said, unity of Tibetans, very clearly. Then they talk of return of Dalai Lama. And then many would talk of freedom for Tibet, and some of them not mention the word freedom. They'll talk of religion and everything, but they'll not talk of it. But none of them are damning China. Right? None of them saying, I'm doing it because Buddha has asked me to do it or I got a dream that, no, I should do it because religion asked me to do it. So there is no evidence of extreme, but that's the language they use. And you know, recently, I think it was Zhu Weichun maybe, he's capable of saying all these things, who said Dalai Lama is like Saddam Hussein. But then he said also, oh, Dalai Lama is also like ISIS. So they come up with all those things, but it's there. Racialization, religion. Social transformation is taking place again. And finally, I'll conclude with this. 
militarization. If you go to in the entire landscape of Tibet is heavily militarized, if not completely decimated for resources. Militarization is not only PLA form and PLA Air Force form. Militarization is form of the armed police. It is form of uh, PSB, Pub uh, Public Security Bureau. It is in form of visible police, in form of invisible police and semi-visible police. Right? I say because all those exist. You only need to do a round you know, bar course. You need to do around Jokhang Temple, which is the seen as the most sacred place in Tibet. You do around and you see not only very interesting, the military marching every two minutes, opposite direction. It's fine, they want to do it. You see police everywhere and armed police. You also see snipers on rooftops all around. Right? So I'm just saying that, and that's invisible city. So you can imagine what happens in villages and other areas and what, what happens in border regions. The militarization is part of it. Now, normally militarization would take place in the border with India because India is seen as a potential threat. So you could explain that. But militarization is there throughout Tibet. You have railways, you've got air, air bases, and it's very clear that both, all of them are for dual use. So it's not only for civilian purpose, it's also for purpose of militarization. And finally, and I'll conclude with that, what we find is use of violence. Whenever there's resistance, you've got visible violence. Visible violence in terms of killing, in terms of torture, in terms of disappearance, in terms of bullying. You've got epistemic violence in terms of the changing of the name. So you have got Central Beijing Road, North Beijing Road, everything is in a Shanghai Road in Tibet. So there's a transformation there. There's epistemic violence, there's systemic violence of every day where people's identity is being erased. But of course, there's brute physical violence. And that brute physical violence, after we talk of human rights abuses, but the act is rampant throughout Tibet. So overall, I would like to argue that when we look at the ways in which China is governing Tibet, bringing modernity to it, it is bringing modernity. It is a colonial form of modernity, which includes all the features of colonization that we see in any classical, let's say, European Western sense of colonization. And therefore, my ethics, politics, or whatever intellectual endeavor is, that for me, I'm driven to the fact that if I intend to be a progressive academic, that's how I see myself at least, the idea is to challenge injustices, challenge colonization, challenge uh, yeah, challenge colonization. And therefore, I, if I'm studying Tibet, I cannot not challenge the Chinese colonization there. And therefore, without mincing words, I would safely assume, and that's what my hope work is, and I would be more than... Uh, um, be grateful for your comment, criticism, and everything. Is that that the best word to describe Chinese rule is colonization? Thank you. Thank you.